Welcome to the United Soccer Coaches Podcast, presented by League Apps. League Apps is the leading youth sports management platform, providing organizations with the technology and professional development they need to run, grow, and win. On a mission to bring the benefits of sport to kids everywhere, they go beyond technology to provide leaders with professional development and relationship building, and to work with sports-based organizations to address issues of accessibility and equality. To learn more, find them at League Apps com or as league apps on all of the social networks now here's the host of the show longtime soccer broadcaster and voice of united soccer coaches dean linky i am dean linky this is the united soccer coaches podcast and it is presented by league apps juneteenth is a federal holiday in the united states commemorating emancipation of enslaved african-americans it is also often observed for celebrating african-american culture Originating in Galveston, Texas, it has been celebrated annually on June 19th in various parts of the United States since 1865, and the day was recognized as a federal holiday on June 17th of last year when President Joe Biden signed the Juneteenth National Independence Day Act into law. Here to talk about Juneteenth and the notion that, you know what? Every day should be Juneteenth. Every day should be Black History Month. Every day, we all should walk hand in hand together. I know it's easier said than done, but a man who has really built his life around trying to do that is Mike Curry, an honor award winner with United Soccer Coaches. He's received almost every award there is from United Soccer Coaches. He still puts his money where his mouth is, working on the foundation for United Soccer Coaches. Mike Curry kicks it off and He actually has one segment where he's got a great story about a former slave that is narrated by Emmy Award-winning actor Jeffrey Wright. His name was Nearest Green, and Nearest Green then became friends with Jack Daniel. And those two families came together, black and white, and made a difference, and they're still making a difference as both those legacies live on. Jack Daniel lives on. And amazingly, Uncle Nearest Premium Whiskey still also lives on. Kind of a unique way to tie in our message on Juneteenth on behalf of United Soccer Coaches. We're not done there celebrating Juneteenth as we'll meet a 30 under 30 member who is originally from Zimbabwe where his dad played for Zimbabwe, was the national team coach and actually came over to the U.S. with Charlton Morari when he came over here, ended up at Northeastern playing college soccer and now is in North Carolina as a youth coach. And we finish up talking about college soccer recruiting with Don Williams, who was interviewed by Anna Witte at the last convention in Kansas City. So I start by saying cheers as we celebrate Juneteenth and cheers to Mike Curry for kicking it off. And he'll do that after this message from our presenting sponsor, League Apps. We bet you didn't get into this business for the back office duties. That's why we created League Apps, the industry's leading youth sports management platform. So you can spend less time with busy work and more time doing what you love. League Apps provides organizations with the technology and professional development they need to run, grow, and win. Go to leagueapps.com to learn more. League Apps is proud to be the presenting sponsor of the United Soccer Coaches Podcast. Welcome back to the United Soccer Coaches Podcast, presented by League Apps. 
Once again, here's the host of the show, Dean Linke. Juneteenth is a federal holiday in the United States commemorating emancipation of enslaved African-Americans. It is also often observed for celebrating African-American culture. Originating in Galveston, Texas, it has been celebrated annually on June 19th in various parts of the United States since 1865. The day was recognized as a federal holiday on June 17, 2021, just one year ago, when President Joe Biden signed the Juneteenth National Independence Day Act into law. Juneteenth is also known as Jubilee Day, Emancipation Day, Freedom Day, and Black Independence Day. Juneteenth's commemoration is on the anniversary date of the June 19, 1865 announcement of General Order Number no. 3 by Union Army General Gordon Granger proclaiming freedom for enslaved people in Texas, which was the last state of the Confederacy with institutional slavery. Here to help us all be better informed on what Juneteenth truly means and really get beyond just this one day is the Honorable Mike Curry, who, as it should be, was named the United Soccer Coaches Honor Award recipient in 2019 in recognition of a distinguished career, tremendous service to the association, and exemplary contributions to the coaching profession and beyond. In his 28-plus years as a United Soccer Coaches member, Michael Curry has volunteered in several leadership, administrative, coaching, and philanthropic roles within the association, he is currently a member of the United Soccer Coaches Foundation Committee and was a member of the former NSCAA Board of Governors, serving as its chair for five years. He was also previously a member of the then-named NSCA Board of Directors from 2001 to 2007. Michael Curry has been recognized for his service to the association, receiving its Certificate of Appreciation, the Presidential Recognition Award, Letter of Commendation, and even the United Soccer Coaches Foundation Meritorious service award again before receiving a couple of years ago the distinguished honor award mike curry welcome to this week's united soccer coaches podcast thank you dean and thank you for that wonderful introduction i'm gonna have to bottle that up and sell it <laughs> well and it's such a neat time too because look i think we're reaching a point now where as we become friends and we open our arms we're allowed to be a little naive and i admittedly called you and said Mike, I don't totally get what Juneteenth is. I feel a little bit better about the fact that it wasn't until last year that President Biden made it an official celebration, but you saw that as a great opportunity to inform not just me, but all of our members. Yeah, I, I think the, the key word, Dean, is inform, right? So, and I appreciate you reading the history of what Juneteenth is, and I've made it a personal commitment to do what I can do to help Juneteenth not just be a day or a moment in time in the middle of June. And then at some point it wears off and everybody kind of goes off along their way and it doesn't come up again till the next Juneteenth. I would like people to think about it as a celebration of black history, a celebration of black heritage, and more importantly, a call to action of how we can each look inward and say to ourselves, what can I do today, tomorrow, and the next day to make the world a little bit better? And inform is a really good word because it's intentional, right? Or it should be intentional. Imagine if we all woke up tomorrow and said, you know, two or three times a month now, I'm gonna make a personal commitment to learn something new about another culture, another group of people, and make that something that I'm gonna commit myself to. 
I'm not saying I'm going to have to join them. I don't have to be like them, but I want to understand, respect, and value them. And when we do that, Dean, you know what happens? We actually find out that we have a lot more in common than we are different. Mm. So to me, Juneteenth, I'd like Juneteenth to inspire us to think about the world that way. Just quickly, I'll tell you, COVID has been interesting. My family, we uh, realized early on that we were worried about people being isolated in the family, especially our older members. So we started a Thursday family Zoom. Starts at three o'clock Eastern time. And it was supposed to only be like an hour. Now we got to kick people off. I mean, it's just, (laughs) we get in there, we start talking about all kinds of things. But one of the things we decided to do last year was every week, someone would share a piece of history that's unknown. It's one of these little discoveries that you're going, wow, I had no idea. Matter of fact, last week, it was one of my cousins presenting a paper, a research paper that actually went into corn rolls and that during slavery, slaves would actually embed instructions, maps, other pertinent information in the corn rolls to help people understand how to navigate escaping slavery, right? And he showed it and, and it was amazing. It's like, Wow, a way, a way to have something to document Underground Railroad, et cetera, but without the slave master knowing. And it just looks like a pretty, you know, don't get me wrong, but it's, it's gorgeous. I, I don't know if you've seen it. some of these, they're, they're works of art, quite frankly. It's not, it's, not, it's not even a fashion statement. It's art. It's beautiful, right? But to now be able to add to it this sense of history takes it to a whole nother level, right? It, it, it provides another level of value above and beyond. And it shows the power of people who are oppressed, but more importantly, their, their creativity. Now think of how creative that is. And so anyway, that's the part about black culture, black heritage, black history that is exciting to me. And so much of it has been quite frankly oppressed that you start to discover it. I mean, think of the movie Hidden Figure, Figures. That's a true story. Yeah. Think of the movie Glory, the, the Fighting 54th. I mean, and, and as a person who you know spent time in the military, there's no greater honor than serving and fighting for something that you can't even have. So imagine those black soldiers from the North going to the South, fighting for a freedom, and many of the people that they were you know, fighting for couldn't, um, you know, take advantage of that freedom. So there's story after story like that, that you find out, or the ones that we do know about, but when you finally look into them, you find there's this whole power of interactions with people. Like, uh, you know, I just recently looked at again, the movie uh, 42 with uh, Jackie Robinson and just, you know, the power of relationships and how the owner of the team was such an instrumental part in his success. But more importantly, actually a couple of years ago, went to an, I can't think of his name, but he's an expert on the Negro baseball leagues. And he was telling the story of how the black players, the Satchel Pages and the others, great players of that time, they're the ones that actually picked Jackie Robinson for that role because they realized we only get one shot at this. And Jackie Robinson's excellent player, but he actually wasn't the best, right? Which is fascinating because he was exceptional. Yeah. <laughs> the black players got together and said, no, no, he's the guy that should take this journey and open the doors because 
he's going to be called the N-word. He's going to be spat on. He's going to, and we need someone that has a background who can, and a temperament to deal with this, which he clearly was overly qualified for with his, his background, right? And the rest is history. But it's those types of things, when you start thinking about it and you're exploring it, it not only is a great moment in history, but you can step back and say, okay, what can I learn from the Jackie Robinson story as I'm trying to set up other minorities and women and other underserved groups for success? What are the key elements there that that owner did that we can model to help people be successful? And we're not going to do it for them. We're going to let their talent determine their success. But how can we clear the runway, give them fuel for the plane, and set them along their way, right? And that, to me, is what history really can be of value. So when you look at Juneteenth and you look at all the history behind it, and especially how the states in the South handled the Emancipation Proclamation, I mean, it, it, it wasn't pretty. And quite frankly, a lot of those issues still remain with us today. So I've said a lot, but to me, that, that's what I am, you know, until my last breath, I'm going to try my best to do whatever I can to make these celebrations come to life and help people embrace them in a way that they can build them into their way of behaving and their way of living and to help improve their interactions with others, especially people who, who aren't like them. Yeah, and so obviously you have been so deeply involved with United Soccer Coaches. In fact, you used to even chair the Black Soccer Coaches Advocacy Group. Have you been able to share this message with Nicole and the other leaders of United Soccer Coaches of, hey, let's not stop at Black History Month. Let's not stop on Juneteenth. Let's keep going. Not only share, but I'm not, I, I will tell you, you get us in a room and we all embrace this. I think the key is how do we make it easy to have those conversations. And I know the other day when we talked, part of the theme around how I'm trying to do this is around having those conversations. Sometimes those are difficult conversations, but having them, having them under the framework of trust where it's okay to be vulnerable, it's okay to be stupid, it's okay to not have it all right, but what's most important is to have the conversation and to have it at the right time. So for example, it's fascinating to me that we still have not had, I'm gonna say a valid and effective conversation around Kaepernick's taking a knee. Now, forget points of view at the moment. Let's just talk about process. Let's talk about the art of communication because we gotta get along. We're not always gonna agree on things, but we have to have the ability to talk about them. But unfortunately, that gesture was hijacked by our president at the time, and it got politicized, and we never got to the reasons why athletes feel that way. Yet, for the second year in a row, you go to the Premier League, and I know some of my American friends who think basketball, baseball, and football are bigger than world soccer. I've tried to educate them, but it's, it's hard sometimes. Uh, but the Premier League is probably the preeminent sporting league in the world by every measure. I mean, economically, you look at the balance sheets. You, I mean, it is, right? And for the second year, second season in a row, every game, the players, the referees, the staff, they take a knee. 
And what's most exciting, interesting, Dean, is you know, because you've done your share of broadcasting and events, without exception, because I, I was actually looking for it. I said, when are one of these commentators going to go to an ad or make a joke? So whenever that whistle blows from them take a knee, they each take the time to explain why they're taking a knee. And that word, the, the players are in, they use words like the players are in solidarity against racism and bigotry and hatred. And it's a powerful message. And then the next whistle blows, they all stand up. And then the whistle blows after that, and they start the game. And it's every single game. And we haven't gotten to that level here yet. We haven't talked about why would someone like me have to manage being pulled over, even if I haven't done anything. But in my mind, it's like, well, no, I just want to get home alive. I don't know what mood this officer's in. I know I've already profiled. I'm a, I'm a black male and they're trained that I'm dangerous. They don't, he doesn't know my background. So I have to manage this. So you can easily understand how a routine traffic violation from someone who looks like me, who maybe is just having a bad day, or maybe, you know, they're a little bit hot or they're just, they've had enough. They just, they're just in an aggravated mood and how quickly that can get out of hand. And we've just seen example after example after example of that leading to a tragic death. But I shouldn't have to think about that. When I talk to my, my white friends, it's like, yeah, I don't even have to think about that. It's just pulled over. I say, hey, officer, you know, yeah, see you down at the, the Legion on the weekend or whatever, or at the, at the church, right? It's no big deal. And so why is that? And so those are the conversations we need to have more of. And I think to get off the heavy aspect of this, we can take this to our game, right? Our game is just a, it's, it's almost like a, a blank palette for an artist. And instead of having just one or two colors to paint with, we've got the rainbow of colors. You know, when I think of soccer, I think of just, and matter of fact, one of these days, I hope that there's a presentation at one of the convention where someone much more talented than me can take how the cultural norms of a country influence the way they play soccer. Because we see it, don't we? The personality of that country shows up in the World Cup. Yeah. And behind that is lifestyle, foods, traditions, heritage. It's all that. And we are in such a unique position as a sport to celebrate that. And not just Juneteenth. And Juneteenth is clearly one that we should celebrate and, and, and everyone should ask the questions that you've been asking, right? But we should do that for all, all the cultures. We should be naturally curious about other people. And like I said, once we do that, and once we just explore, what we're gonna discover is we have a lot more in common than we are different. So many good stories in there. I'm glad that you referenced Colin Kaepernick because you're right, I don't think his story has been able to be told over here the way it should be. And I like the way you're putting everything in perspective. And I like the way you take a look at US soccer now. I mean, I think there's a good chance when the men take the field for the World Cup that more than 50% of the players are going to be black for the U.S. team. I mean, I think I'm right on that, where there's more and more black players. So I think that's another message. But I actually have to go back to the part where I'm a little worried, Mike, that not only is this divisiveness and racism still out there, I'm worried now that the world moving forward is going to even forget that we had slavery, which I don't think we can ever forget that because I think that's probably where this all started. Is that something you're worried about or is that nonsense? 
It's not nonsense. I can't remember this quote, but it's, uh, you know, those who forget their history are destined to repeat it. Mm. And I think we've seen that over and over again. I mean, after the Holocaust, and I remember studying that for the first time in my goodness, junior high school. And I just said to my, I had two questions in my mind that I had to, as I uh, went through adolescence and became a young man, I was, I was going to answer these questions. How could how could a whole population of people follow someone like Hitler? How could they do that? I mean, you could, it's just inhumane. It's man's inhumanity to man. And how does a people, especially a whole nation, become comfortable with that, right? And of course, we've seen how that can happen up to even recently. I also thought that, wow, after the Holocaust, clearly this could never happen again. And look at how many examples of genocide have occurred from Bosnia, Herzegovina to you name it. I mean, there's almost a half a dozen or so that you sit there and go, wow, we, we just can't seem to learn. And the irony of all of this is when you get people together and you get them to talk, you get them to really explore what their similarities and differences are. I know I've said it twice already, but I'll say it a third time. What we'll find is we have a lot more in common then we are different. And I know when I'm doing diversity, equity, and inclusion exercises, especially awareness exercises, I try to come up with either videos or pictures that actually celebrate this. And it's interesting. I have one, the conflict in the Middle East. And you can actually, it's a, it's a drone shot, actually. And it's showing a bunch of men huddled around a TV with a generator. And it's the only light. And it's very subdued. But you can tell it's, they're watching the game. Because in the distance, you can actually see conflict going on. There's a bomb that just exploded or whatever. And the power of this game that brings people together, that even with their lives at stake, they're going to take the time out to you know, follow their, their team, right? I remember just recently in the game for the World Cup, the qualifying between Wales and Ukraine. And I just, I became emotional watching one, the passion that both Wales was fighting for a different reason than Ukraine, but good, hard play, but sportsmanlike, helping each other up, you know, and then another hard tackle and a smile, bring them up, and knowing that, look, all I can do is my best. But when this whistle blows, one of us is going to win. One of us will not go forward, but nobody's going to lose. Because when you looked at the crowd, especially when the, the Ukrainian players went around and, and I, I was just so impressed with how the Wales fans just, I mean, I'm just trying to think of how I could even play at that level with all the things going on in my home country, right? But that's the power of this game. And it's the power of trying to find what do we have in common, embracing that and exploiting it so that we can try to solve some of the things that have been traditional conflicts over and over and over again. And until we learn how to do that, I just think this is gonna continue. And part of that is history, right? Part of that is understanding what that history is. And, and one other comment along that line, Dean, I mean, think of people who really embrace their sport. You can tell a person that's really into their sport because at some point, especially when you interview great athletes, at some point, they start talking about their heroes. And guess what? Those heroes are the people in their sport that they want to be like. History has power. 
So why wouldn't I want to do that in life? Why wouldn't I want to know who a Martin Luther King was or, or, or Ruby Bridges? Or, you know, I can go down the list of all the people, black, white, brown, you know, they all had history and that history needs to be, um, you know, celebrated. I, I don't know if you know, but the, um, the U.S. Mint has just done a new series where they're recognizing a great American women. And uh, the first five coins have been released, uh, you know, with M Maya Angelou and Madame Mankiller, who, you know, and, and I, I can't think of all the names of them, but there are five women, all diverse. But when you go out and look at their history and their contributions to not only this country, but to, uh, you know, women and the progress of women, um, it's exciting to see that. And we just need more of that. We just need more opportunities to understand our history and how much we have in common. We're going to have one more history lesson after our first break, and it will also involve bourbon and whiskey, which is always <laughs> fun to talk about. But I wanted to go back. I just want a quick soundbite. So the fact that I mentioned that I think more than half the team might be black for the U.S. Men's World Cup team, does that mean anything to you or is it no big deal? Oh, no, it means a lot to me. It, it means, uh, I, I think the secret to the U.S. winning a World Cup is for us to fully leverage the talent that this country has to offer. Mm. And I would say we have great players that make it up to the system. The tragedy is there's a lot of other great players that never get to the system. You know, the paper play, access to safe places to play and green space and access to those communities is very limited. Now, they're enjoying the game. If you go out, I mean, I can go to some Latino communities and boy, you sit there and some of the games and the quality of play will take your breath away. And then you're saying, okay, so why? These, these are Americans. They're Hispanic Americans, Latin Americans. Why aren't they in the system? And therein lies the opportunity that still remains. I think having more men of color on our men's national team is a great start. And I think that visibility is going to inspire other young black men in particular who maybe say, you know, I think I'm gonna try soccer instead of football, right? And maybe the next LeBron James, instead of being in basketball, is gonna be on our US men's national team, right? And the same thing with our women's program. We're seeing a lot more diversity there. So I think we're, we're getting there. What would really help U.S. soccer move it faster is we need more people like the people we're trying to attract and retain in positions of leadership. Because any successful organization, that's where it starts. It starts from the top and it starts having a top and a leadership that looks like your constituents. And we still have a lot of work to, to do there. Well said. We've got a great history lesson around the corner that involves a little bourbon and whiskey and some names that uh, even those that don't like bourbon and whiskey will certainly recognize. We're celebrating Juneteenth, but as Mike Curry said, we're not just doing it today. We're going to try to do it every day. And for all the reasons he just mentioned, it's the United Soccer Coaches podcast presented by League Ups. More with Mike Curry after these messages. Performance analysis is now recognized as having a crucial role to play in any coaching program. The United Soccer Coaches Performance Analysis Level 1 Special Topics Diploma 
will provide coaches with real-world examples of how analysis is being used to enhance the individual player development process and maximize team performance. Additionally, successful candidates will achieve level one accreditation as an applied performance analyst from the International Society of Performance Analysis of Sport. Register now by visiting the master course schedule on unitedsoccercoaches.org. Welcome back to the United Soccer Coaches podcast presented by Lee Gaps. We're joined by the honorable and honor award winner for United Soccer Coaches, a man who's given so much of his life to the game. Got to remember, he also worked with Jurgen Klinsmann as a goalkeeper coach. He's done it on the field, off the field, in the boardroom. You name it, he's done it. Talking about Mike Curry, and we went to break talking about this story that is out there now. It's narrated by Emmy Award winning actor Jeffrey Wright, who is brilliant. This beautifully shot short film telling the story of the first known African-American master distiller is about much more than whiskey. It is a story of honor, respect, and an unlikely friendship that could be the greatest American story you never heard. Nearest Green Finest Whiskeys coming out of this. And that's his name, Nearest Green. His real name was actually Nathan, but I'm not going to say any more. I know you've got a link, Mike. We'll try to drop that link in as we promote this podcast, but share this story about Nearest Green and his ties to a very famous name in the bourbon whiskey world no well thank you i appreciate that and uh, so uh, the quick backstory is this evolved from and i think i mentioned it earlier my uh, family coming up with a history moment among black people and in our weekly uh zoom meeting uh we challenged ourselves to come up with a piece of history that you wouldn't know one of them was the story of near screen there's a, um, a young lady on Wall Street. She happened to be an analyst for the spirits industry. So her job is to help give market information for investors around spirits. You know, all these big brands, they, these are big multinational uh, organizations. And somehow she kept coming across this information on a story that was evolving. So she actually uh, left her job and did research and 2,500 hours of research later and a lot of artifacts, she discovered this story that is narrated by Jeffrey Wright. And, and basically it is a, a, um, a preacher in Tennessee um, near Lynchburg up in the hills. And uh, this preacher of course um, had slaves. And um, in addition to being a preacher, one of his, as Jeffrey says in the video, one of his side hustles was making whiskey. And so he had this gentleman named Nearest Green and Nearest Green was from the islands and he had perfected uh, purifying water using charcoal, which is one of the key elements in really good whiskey. And so Nearest Green would make this whiskey. And um, one of the other things that the uh, preacher did was he took in either orphan boys or boys who were looking for work, you know, to try to uh, shape the hearts and minds of these young men. And so one of these young men, um, little frail white boy, went over to uh, the preacher and said, look, what's going on over there? All that smoke and steam and horses going back and forth. And so he took this young man over to meet Nearest Green. And he says, Nearest, I want you to teach him everything you know. Well, over the years, this young man grew up to be very good at this. As a matter of fact, during the Civil War, he would actually sell the liquor uh, to the troops. 
And then after the war and after the Emancipation Proclamation and Nearest Green became a free man, he stayed on for a few years to work with the preacher running his, his distillery. And then after uh, a short time after that, he then left the preacher and went over to join this young man who happened to leave and start his distillery on his own. And that young man ha happens to be the one and only Jack Daniels. <laughs> and so what makes this interesting is if you see the video, I would ask everyone to look at the credits at the end. Part of the artifacts that really was compelling for the Jack Daniels organization, because initially they were a little uncomfortable with this, right? Think about it, it's Rockstar World. But 10 years ago, folks, this story didn't exist. It didn't exist. And so the artifacts is these wonderful pictures of the young Jack Daniels sitting with Nearest Green and some of his relatives and family outings where these two families are together. And back then, black people and white people didn't get together and they didn't take pictures together. That's what made it so compelling. Yeah. And so they, these two families had decided, you know, we make the best whiskey in the land. That's gonna be our legacy. And sure enough, it has become, but it gets better. This Miss Weaver, who actually discovered this, decided she's gonna go ahead and keep Near Screen's legacy alive. So today they have a multi-million dollar distillery, came online uh, two, three years ago, and is starting now to produce three types of whiskeys. Uh, the, the most rare one, the five-year-old batch is just coming out this summer. You have to get on the waiting list for that. But the other two, I mean, are just winning awards left and right. I mean, here's a whiskey that didn't even exist eight years ago, right? It's an all-woman female leadership team, CEO, vice chair. The master distiller happens to be the, I think, the great-great-niece of Nearest Green, and she signs every bottle. And then it gets better. They actually bought a small community college. And by the way, this is part of now the Nearest Green and Jack Daniels Foundation. So talk about, talk about reparations, right? To me, this is how reparations work. Mm -hmm. These two got together and they bought the small community college and they, their goal is to make it the leading producer educator of women and minority winemakers and distillers in the world. That's the only curriculum in this entire community college is winemaking and distilling. Incredible. And their goal is to, they want to change the, the, the face of this industry and have more women and minorities actually being part of the creative and the leadership part of it. And so it's a wonderful story that actually wouldn't have been told had she not, her name is Fawn Weaver, has she not said, you know, I'm going to look into this and then decide to actually pursue it. So the house that Jeffrey Wright actually does the video in to tell this story it's actually the original plantation home on the land that it was actually there. I mean, I'm hoping, I'm already planning a trip to go down because I want to do uh, the, the tour and the wine, and not wine tasting, the, the whiskey tasting <laughs> and, and, and enjoy a little bit of, uh, you know, Tennessee um, barbecue and, 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 and you know, the, the, the backcountry life. Uh, but there's so many stories like that. And I know my family and I, we come up, between the corn rolls and then the ones that movies are made. I mean, I'm sure people have heard of the movie Green Book. You know, the Green Book, that's a real, that's a true story. And it just talks about a life. And when you look at it, you look at this history and this heritage and all these wonderful things that in this case, black people did and their creativity to 
create a whole life and value for everybody, right? Who would have ever thought this connection between a slave and Jack Daniels and how they, and, and, and I'll finish with this. In the credits, they show the pictures and my favorite picture is the very last picture. It's Jack Daniels, I guess his grandmother and Nearest Green's grandmother. Mm -hmm. And these two women are looking at each other with the smile on their faces that you can't, you can't fake that. You can tell that this is genuine love and admiration for these two families that have figured out how to just tune out the rest of the world and do something really great. And so I like to share that story. I also like to share that story to say, you know, the, the thing we need to remember that it teaches us is this history is only going to be as good as us exploring it, discovering it, sharing it, and then learning from it, right? And so all this stuff going on about we don't want to teach this in school and that in school, you know, in, in all candor, I just personally think, and I hope I don't offend my members uh, at, at the association because it's not intentional, but I just feel like people are, they spend too much time feeling guilty about history. Yeah, I mean, you know, our forefathers all owned slaves. That doesn't mean I don't respect them for the genius of this democracy that they created. It was their time, but it's part of their history, right? And so we all have to kind of find a way to reconcile that and make sure that it doesn't get in the way of telling the truth because the history is truth. Mm, incredible. And one final note on that, as you think about- and By the way, Dean, it's good whiskey, by the way. Yeah. I, well, I'm not a real big whiskey person, but I've, I have a bottle and I treat my, and they go, oh, where'd you find this? And then I tell them the story and give them the link. Uh, and, and they all love it. So for those out there who like whiskey and bourbon, this is a little too heavy for me. I'm a little light. I'm a, I'm a light. <laughs> we're we're going to include the link in there. It's so good. Uncle Nearest is currently available in all 50 states and 12 countries and is sold in more than 25,000 stores, bars, hotels, restaurants, as well as its 323 acre distillery in Shelbyville, Tennessee, where you might run into Mike Curry, dubbed as Maud <laughs> Disney world and another example of forgetting about what we look like and working together and growing together and that's part of Juneteenth but let's do Juneteenth every day right Mike that's the that's the final message right yeah let's do Juneteenth every day and I would I would challenge all the coaches out there to just find find a way to add this into what you do let's all do this and make it a part of who we are all right. Great storytelling by Mike Curry. I could listen to him all day, every day. The man is brilliant. He is giving. He is kind. And what a great history lesson on multiple levels, including the notion of, like he said, let's celebrate Juneteenth every day and let's be together every day. I like it. Keeping this theme going, we have an African-American 30 under 30 member coming up next, Charlton. He was born in Zimbabwe. His dad played in Zimbabwe. He was actually the national team coach. Charlton came over to the U.S. when he was about 14. His dad came with him to make sure he had that support system, and we'll meet him after these messages. This is Dean Linky, longtime college soccer play-by-play -play man, reminding all college soccer coaches to amplify your upcoming season with the United Soccer Coaches College Services Program. Register now for the 2022-23 season and gain access to valuable resources you can use all season long. 
from educational programming to general liability insurance, the list of member benefits is endless. Make sure your program gets the recognition they deserve through All-America, Scholar All-America, Staff of the Year, and Team Awards available for college services members. Don't miss out. Early bird registration ends October 1st, so sign up today by going to unitedsoccercoaches.org. Welcome back to the United Soccer Coaches podcast presented by Lee Gaps, my favorite part of the show where we meet another fine member of our 30 under 30 class. Right now we're meeting Charlton Mushari, who's actually headed over to South Africa, which is awesome. And by the way, his dad was a former professional soccer player in Zimbabwe and coached the Zimbabwe men's national team. So soccer is in his blood indeed. Charlton, welcome to the United Soccer Coaches podcast. Jim, thanks for having me. Excited to kind of share some of the stuff I have with you and um, hear a lot from you. So thank you for having me. Yeah, it's my pleasure. So tell us what you're doing right now. Are you back at your alma mater coaching? Are you also working in youth soccer? And by the way, your alma mater, of course, is Northeastern. I was actually at Northeastern uh, for two years up until a year ago, working under Chris Bundy. I was there for two years and then um, decided to leave, take on a new um, adventure and uh, moved to North Carolina with um, a club called um, FC Atletico. It's in Mooresville, so about 20 minutes north of Charlotte, working with youth, uh, youth soccer, focusing on um, U7 through U10 boys and girls. Oh, fantastic. So I, I'm actually doing this interview. I'm in Chapel Hill, so I know North Carolina well. I spend a lot of time. We're actually going up to Charlotte today. My son's 25th birthday is today, so we're going to see him in Charlotte. So we might be passing in the wind as I know you're traveling and that type of yeah. thing. So, yeah, what made you pick North Carolina to continue your coaching career? I always went to North Carolina when I was in college. I used to play against USCW, Chapel Hill, um, all those schools, and I always liked it. Honestly, the weather is kind of similar where I grew up in Zimbabwe and, and South Africa. So in deciding to do youth soccer, I was lucky enough. I met with um, with a guy that works with Charlotte FC now. Um, he's kind of helping me navigate the college to, through uh, to club soccer journey. And um, working with him, Patrick Daka, that's his name, um, introduced me to this club, FC Atletico. And honestly, that's how it landed. It was kind of easy process to kind of transition to North Carolina, but something that I needed to do to get away from college soccer for a little bit. Well, let's understand your journey. I already dropped the big news that your dad was a big time player in Zimbabwe and coached the men's national team in the African Cup of Nations, which is pretty awesome. So talk about how long you lived in Zimbabwe. I know you came over to New Hampshire to go to high school. What age was that? And let's, yeah, let's hear your journey. Yeah, my dad, like you said, he was a coach um, in Zimbabwe. And uh, so I got, I got involved with soccer since I think it's my first childhood memory of me um, at a practice watching him coach. Spent most of my childhood, honestly, on the soccer field or by the soccer field. So I was in Zimbabwe and my dad used to travel a lot with coaching. I'm just in Germany with Liverpool for a while. So I got a chance to travel a little bit as a kid, more than most kids in my situation or in a in in a third world country would. So through traveling and education and going to schools, I, I went to soccer schools growing up in Zimbabwe, boarding schools. And then um, at the age of 15, I moved to the States to, to New Hampshire, a prep school over there. I was there for four years, played soccer there, did well. My dad actually moved there as well. And he was the director of coaching for a club nearby. So it was good to also have family because I know a lot of friends that I kind of came 
we took the U.S. in her family. So it was good to have him there in New Hampshire. Um, and then I got recruited by Brian Ainscoff to play in Northeastern. Was in Northeastern, Brian Ainscoff for two years. Then Chris Bundy came. I played my last two years under Chris Bundy. In the summer after graduating, kind of hanging out at home, having a couple of tryouts here and there, um, Chris Bundy basically gave me a call and said, hey, one of the coaches left. I know you're very interested in coaching. Do you want to come back and, and coach? And it was like a sun if Saturday or something. And then I was like, yep, on Monday, I'll be back there. Um, mm -hmm. So I flew back to the States. And um, on Monday, I was I was in the office. And yeah, I was coaching. That's how my coaching journey kind of started, yeah. Kimbo Union Academy, four years where you played varsity soccer, state cup finalists in 11 and 12, earned the Lakes Region champion side on 2013. You were also named to the New England Preparatory School Athletic Council All-Star Team your senior year, and you played basketball. And as you mentioned, you had your dad nearby as well. So to me, I read that, and that meant that you were all in on athletics, but I feel like you also were all in on academics as well. Just talk about the importance of you know making sure that you were great on the soccer field. Sounds like you're a pretty good basketball player as well. I want to know more about that, but also taking academics very seriously. Yeah, so the press school I went to, um, Kimball Union, it was a very good school, something very good for me coming um, from um, Zimbabwe because um, I was honestly focused on soccer. It was, you know, growing up, I grew up in a situation where it was like it's either soccer or nothing to get out of the community I was in. And a lot of my friends were like that, and a lot of them who've made it out, they've always, it's just soccer for most of them. So growing up, I knew it's like, okay, you either have to be good at kicking a soccer ball or you're going to be stuck here for, for a while. So going to Kimball Union kind of opened up my eyes a little bit. Um, I struggled my first year, you know, transitioning to being really serious in school, but like um, second, um, third, and my senior year, it was, um, I was all in on school, you know. It was kind of structured for us, you go to school, um, half the day, then right from school, you go to the um, practice, then dinner, then to study hall. So it's very structured, keeps you out of trouble. Um, and so doing that for four years, after two years, I was getting like, you know, in rhythm. And then on my third and fourth day, I really, really did well, um, which gave me a chance to um, talk to some good level D1 academic and um, academic schools. Um, and it made the process to go to college a little bit easier. So I'm very thankful for Kimball Union. I played basketball, but to be honest, basketball, we had to play a second sport. So I picked basketball just because I could run um, in a line and I could do lateral movements. I wasn't the best player. I was uh, captain of JV. I think that was my prime. Actually, I enjoyed that a little bit more than soccer because there was no pressure sometimes, so I think that was the most fun thing about basketball. No pressure play. I can go zero for 15 on the line and not have to worry about anyone judging me, so yeah. Okay, so you, you were no Dikembe Mutombo or Akeem Olajuwon, nothing not like that. Nah, 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 nah. <laughs> Almost, maybe. <laughs> not too far off, not too far off, yeah. All right, well, that's awesome. Well, Chris Bondi, I mean, what a story. I think he's now the new head coach at UConn, right? Yeah, Chris is the new coach at UConn. Um, Texted, we, we talk a decent amount, um, you know, um, it really helped me out big time transition into the, into the college process. And it, it gave me a lot to do at Northeastern and kind of made it easier for me now where I am. Because every day I was with Chris in his office at least for two, three hours every day for two years. That's a lot of time. And um, now he's at UConn, so he's doing very, very well. Um, him and um, Kim Olmsbeck as well, who was the first assistant when we were at Northeastern. We spent a lot of time with Nicole Hercules and the chair of the Black Soccer Coaches Advocacy Group. And you see Chris get this job. The numbers still aren't where they need to be. 
But then, you know, we also look at you as a young black man who wants to break into coaching. When you see Chris get that job, what does it mean to you and other people that look like you, coach? No, it means a lot. I was very happy. Like, um, I'm happy to say that because yesterday I was walking down the street with my with my friend uh, who was um, a captain in Northeastern, actually. Um, and he just was just like, hey, man, how great is it that Chris Bundy is, is a head coach and him opening up doors for guys like yourself and... You know that statement coming from another friend. You know, it meant you know it means that people really see that one person can really change things for everyone. So I'm excited for Chris. You know, there's other guys, of course, but I'm really excited for Chris, especially in the northeast. Now there's Chris, um, there's Matt Chamber. There's another guy. He's now at Trinity. So having those two guys really in the northeast, it, it gives you something to to look towards because it's hard, right? If you're trying to say, hey, I want to reach this goal and then you look up and there's no one that kind of looks like you. So now when you have Chris, it's, it really is something for people like me. And also for younger, you know, I have kids who are in college now who text me, it's like, hey, Charlie, I want to coach as well. What's the pathway? So for me to be here as well, setting sort of an example for other kids that are younger than me, it also means a lot for me. And it's always a special shout out to Chris because these are the guys that kind of paved the way for everyone else. Yeah, I like that story. And, you know, one of the special people for United Soccer Coaches is Ray Reed, the longtime UConn coach, who's always had a very diverse team. He's always had a lot of great black players. Andre Blake comes to mind. The Canadian forward comes to line and Laren and, and the list is endless. And he actually created an endowment with United Soccer Coaches to allow black coaches to go to the convention and take courses and make no mistake, I'm sure Ray played a big role in making sure that a person of color got that job, but also the right person, you know, which is what Chris fits. I mean, it didn't matter that he's black. He's the right person for the job. But the fact that Ray is opening those doors as well as a white man, I think is a good sign that we're making progress. Can you can you second that? Oh, yeah, no, I think that's a very uh, a positive thing that I just said. It is, um, you know, the relationship that those two have is, is brilliant. Chris played for Ray, um, and Chris always is a talk, talk about Ray when we're in the office. So it's always good to see that a relationship like that lasted for this long, and they still can, you know, Ray can be a reference for Chris. And um, I'm hoping, you know, I have the same thing with the guys that I played for, like Coach Ainscoff. I met him at the convention, and he introduced me to everyone so it's always good knowing that these guys who are out there trying to help out as much as they can so it's absolutely brilliant from Chris and Ray to work together like that. Charlton when did you first learn about United Soccer Coaches what has it meant to you and what was the push to make you want to be a part of this amazing 30 under 30 class? Um, so funny thing the first time was my dad um, yeah like I said he was a coach he got invited to come speak at the um United Soccer Coaches Convention in like January. And like I said, really, I was I was in a big fan of school when I was a kid. So I remember my dad living in like January and being like, hey, I'm gone for a week. Um, it took, um, I think my mom and my brother, it was this whole family trip to the States. And I, I think I said to him one day that, hey, I'm gonna go to that convention. So I've always known about it for so long. Um, and then two, a year ago, one of my coworkers, um, just said, hey, I think you should apply to the United Soccer Coaches 30 Under 30 program. And I was just like, stop laughing, stop. And then I just like, no, do it. So I did it on the last day, honestly, and sent it. And then after that day, after I applied, then I started to looking into the courses and the people, the advocacy groups. And I was like, wow, 
all I knew was the convention, but there is a lot more um, to it than so. It's been great. It's been a great. I've connected with so many people. Even on my way now, when I go to New York, I'm gonna meet up with another friend that I met at the convention. So it's amazing um, how it's turned out for me. If you've heard any of my interviews with the other 30 under 30 members, Charlton, I often ask the crystal ball question. And that is what you want to be doing 10, 15 years from now. Do you have any idea of, of what would be the ideal job for you 10, 15 years from now, sir? Yeah, no, um, 10, 15 years from now, I want to be coaching at a professional youth environment. And um, I always argue whether it's going to be in the States or it's going to be uh, somewhere in Africa, but I want to be at a professional um youth academy and kind of helping kids grow. I, I believe it's gonna end up being South Africa. I think so, 10, 15 years, yeah. So I'll, I'll say it, I think South Africa professional uh, youth team, I'll, I'll just throw it out there. I like that answer. And if you weren't coaching soccer, based on all your interests and your family life and how close your family is, what might you be doing if you were doing nothing related to soccer? I think I'll be, I'll be a teacher. I think I'll be a teacher. That was my first, I had to do a job to graduate Northeastern and I was a first, first grade teacher. So I think I'll be a teacher, yeah. I think um, working with kids has always been, you know, my mom does it. I think everyone in my family, my aunt is a teacher. Yeah, so I'll be a teacher, it's family trait. I can't let you go without asking about the dreads. I was the press officer for the 92 Olympic team and the 94 World Cup team. I was there when Kobe Jones said, you know what, I'm growing them out. It's going to be part of my look. It's still part of his look. Of course, Kobe Jones, I don't know if you know that name, but one of the all-time great USA players. I'm looking back at pictures of you as a player. You had the dreads then. So how long have the dreads been around, Charlton? By the way, they look, they look awesome, by the way, my man. Oh, nah, thank you. The dreads, the dreads are a family thing. Everyone in my family, my brothers, uh, my dad, everyone has dreadlocks. Um, been in the family for, my mom started it in early 2000, she said, um, but I had my dreads in 2012. So it's been, yeah, it's been 10 year anniversary. You know, I might need to take myself out to celebrate, but I was <laughs> against it, honestly. I used to be against it. Um, I was the last one in my family to get them, but now everyone has them and it's, it's kind of a funny look when we're all traveling, but I also kind of think it's kind of cool now, yeah. Oh yeah, it's part of your identity for sure. And yeah. and that, that great smile you have is also part of your identity. I love that you are now committed to coaching young kids. And uh, I like that you want to have a path back in South Africa. Really enjoyed your story, Charlton. Thanks for sharing it. And congrats on being a member of the 30 Under 30 class for United Soccer Coaches. Great to have you on the podcast, young man. Thank you very much. Um, obviously, sorry for the background music noise here because I was traveling, but I enjoy I, I enjoy listening to, to everyone. I've enjoyed your podcast. I put them on and I'm driving to games. So I'm going to be cringing when I listen to myself. <laughs> when we return, we end the show with Anna Witte, who again was in Kansas City on Podcast Row, filling in for me for one day. Sat down with Don Williams with Sports Recruiting USA, former college coach who is dedicated his life to finding athletes the right spot for them. Anna Witte with Don Williams, Sports Recruiting USA, after these messages. Does it feel like all you're doing to manage your team, club, or league is busy work? If so, League Apps can help you get back to doing what you love, delivering a powerful yet simple youth sports management platform from robust registration and payment tools to automated communications and other software integrations. League Apps saves you time and headaches. 
less busy work, more time doing what you love. Go to LeagueApps.com to learn more. League Apps is proud to be the presenting sponsor of the United Soccer Coaches podcast. United Soccer Coaches Advanced Diplomas have long been regarded as an excellent way to expand your coaching knowledge, advance your career, and improve your player's development. Now, with our blended format that incorporates online and in-person learning, coaches with ever-demanding schedules can earn their diploma in the most time-friendly way possible. Visit unitedsoccercoaches.org slash advanced-diplomas for more information. Welcome into the United Soccer Coaches podcast. I'm Anna Witte, joined today by Don Williams, the head of operations for Sports Recruiting USA and host of the Inside College Soccer podcast. He is also an agent at the Sports Recruiting USA. Don, thanks so much for joining us today. I know you didn't play college soccer, so how did you become a college soccer coach? So I grew up in the 80s and college soccer wasn't quite what it is now. I played soccer my whole life. So I've been playing since I was eight years old. Ended up getting married very, very young, 20 years old. So when I got into coaching because of my kids, like a lot of people, and people found out that I actually had a background growing up, which not a lot of coaches in those days had a background growing up with the game. And so I started taking all my licenses. I think it was at my C license. I did a goalkeeping session for the group because they didn't have a goalkeeper instructor, really. And so they had me do it. One of the candidates with me asked me to come coach with her. Her name was Lisa Best Sellers at the time, Lisa Kowalski now, but I started coaching at Cal State East Bay. Throughout my career, I ended up, I coached at uh, NAIA, NCAA, I've coached Division II, Division Three. I've coached junior college, uh, short stint coaching in the pros, goalkeepers, uh, with a team called the Bay Area Seals back in what they called the A-League, which would be like USL Championship now. That was it. So I ended up with a 30-something year career coaching and 22 years in college, like you said. And in 2018, when I decided enough was enough, <laughs> stepped away and then took over this role as uh, head of operations for the Americas, my territories from Argentina to the Canadian border for Sports Recruiting USA. So when you said you took over this aspect of Sports Recruiting USA as an agent, what do you specifically do for them? We're trying to find the right fit for kids and for college coaches. So between myself and my staff, we probably have 300 years of college coaching experience and everything from national championships at Indiana and Big Ten and SEC and Big 12 and on down to the, the Western schools and the Eastern schools. We've got a lot of variety, uh, Division Three, like I said, and NAIA and junior college coaches. We know a lot of people. So we kind of know what these college coaches want and they, we work with them to find what they're looking for. And then we meld, find matches for them. I don't know. Maybe we're match.com of the college <laughs> world. Th those in the business world know the term headhunters. We're kind of yeah. like headhunters for colleges. So we kind of act like an unofficial assistant coach, bringing them the players they need. But at the same time now, we have the family and we have their needs. So, you know, kids have specific academic needs. Families have specific financial constraints quite often. Certain playing abilities match certain conferences and certain schools. Well, they might not be a good match for other conferences and other schools. So we're playing matchmaker. And so that's what we do as an agent. And then 
for the family. We're there to advise and help and place. And but we do the heavy lifting for them. So you know, the hardest part is kids are going to tournaments and emailing every college coach that's at the tournament. Well, that's one of a thousand emails that those coaches got that week. Things can get lost in the mix sometimes. There's 500,000 kids or so in an age that all, if you go ask them at tournaments, they're all saying they want to play in college. So, but there's only 8,000 openings or 9,000 openings on the women's side. So it's not easy. So we do the heavy lifting and the connecting and then the advising and then the placement. So that's what we do as college placement agents. It's so difficult too, when you are in that high school stage as well, where you also have to handle the recruiting. So it's cool that you guys can be the almost mediator, like the headhunter, like you said, in between the college coaches, the club coaches, and the parents as well. But before you even start working with these athletes, how do you get them on board with you? Well, most of our clients come to us through our scouting network. So we have over 100 mm -hmm. scouts that have all at least played in college, many of them coached in college, or been involved at the higher levels, the pro levels. And so they're scouting all over the world. We have offices in Colombia and Africa, in England and Ireland, in, and then all over the United States and Canada and, and into Mexico, all throughout the US. So a lot of them come to us through scouting networks. Yes, parents reach out all the time. Kids reach out all the time. Can you help me? Can you help me? Honestly, we, we brought in, you know, we bring in a couple hundred kids a year between the guys and the girls side combined, roughly but we go through about 10,000 kids a year that want to, that want us to represent the agency. We just can't, we just can't represent those kinds of numbers because it's a very labor intensive hands-on task that we take on. We're a very boutique agency. It's very unusual and unique. I think very few like us in the world can't help everybody. We just can't, we'd like to, but we can't. Because of that, and you can only take on so many people. When do you recommend them to reach out to your agency and to make sure that they can work with you when they go into the recruiting process? Mid-freshman going into the sophomore year is ideal, and that gives us the chance to see them in person probably four, five, six, seven times before placement time comes. This idea that a sixth, seventh, or eighth, or even going into that ninth grader needs to have somebody helping them is ridiculous. I don't think it's, I don't think it's necessary. No college coaches out there really scouting except for the national team kids that they're keeping a track of they're not really scouting freshmen and they're not scouting eighth graders and they're not scouting seventh graders maybe that's still going on in basketball but these college coaches can't even talk to a kid until beginning of their sophomore year on and and on the girls side it's about a year roughly ahead on the recruiting cycle of where the guys side is with the guys, we're trying to see how much growth is happening between 16, 17, 18 years old. On the girls' side, typically, not always, but they're typically done growing by 15, 16, at least height-wise. Now it's just how strong do they get and how much more soccer playing maturity will they have and individual maturity will they have. All of that will continue to grow. Strength will continue to grow. But we still have a general idea of the frame of the athlete that we're dealing with on the girls' side by 15, 16, but the guys' side, that might not happen until 20, 21, 22. So the guys' side is trying to see how close they can come to having a player that can play with 21, 22-year-old men. And the women's side is trying to see how close we can get to the girl being able to compete with 20, 21, 22-year-old women and be able to impact the game. So I think sophomore year is like perfectly ideal, absolutely spot on ideal for us to consider working with a 
client. When you get a sophomore to come into your agency and they're starting to look at colleges to figure out what they want to do after soccer, what is the first thing you do with these athletes when it comes to the actual overall search? Yeah, it's exactly like a college coach does. So give me your highlight film. Let me see if there's anything here we're digging farther into. Send me full match film. Let me watch a couple of matches and see how the, see if the highlights match what I see in the match film. Then it has to be interview the family and then interview the, the, the players right in there with it because I'm trying to see if their playing abilities are you know, a mid-level D2, but their aspirations are Stanford and UCLA and all Wake Forest and all the big names in the nation. And I can't get them to understand that what their abilities are don't match and they won't agree. It's clearly we're not a right fit for them. They're going to have to find somebody else to help them because it's every time I pick up the phone, it's my reputation on the line. Every time I college coach, if I don't make the right recommendations once, two, three times in a row, they'll stop picking up the phone like everybody else. I just become spam like everybody else does because they get yanked at from all these club coaches are yanking at them. All these players are yanking at them. All the, every, no, every, all these parents are yanking at them from all directions. And it gets very overwhelming for college coaches when they're getting a thousand emails in a week. Their phone won't stop ringing and they won't stop getting texts. And it's not easy. We try not to be part of that spam process. We've contacted Florida State twice, about two players over all of the years that I've been involved and we've been involved, and both times they took both players. So we try to be that spot on. We try to be that targeted and that pinpoint that that coach now doesn't think of us as another waste of their time, right? So once we come to that agreement, Anna, then... We can, as long as the players' expectations and the family expectations align with the picture that we see, then we can start targeting schools that fall within that range of that player's abilities, academic abilities, family financial abilities, and then that player's personality and what, what jives with them, what makes their motor run, and what doesn't. Some players fit in New York City. Other players would fall apart in New York City. Some players fit in Houston, Texas. Other players would fall apart in Houston, Texas. And it goes that way all throughout the country. You kind of mentioned it. These coaches get pulled in a thousand different directions. They also are soccer coaches. They have their own current players they have to deal with. So when you're an athlete or an agent reaching out to these college coaches, what do you need to do to set yourself apart from everyone else who's trying to get in contact with them? Number one, uh, cell phones are best. Text is best. Personal D DMs. Some of our coaches like to work via DM or WhatsApp. Every coach in the country gets the private list of our players once a week. But that we try to hold that to the maximum of just blasting out coaches Every once in a while, I have to. I don't have a choice. Maybe a player comes in to be late, really late. And so I've got to just hit as many as we can, as, as fast as we can. But for the most part, it's a very individualized outreach with coaches that we have relationships with as a group. And so that's the nice thing about having 100 of us. I think now we're probably two phone calls away from any coach in the nation because we have a lot of staff that has these small individual relationships in certain areas. So 
I have an Ohio specialist, right? I have an Ivy League and a little Ivy specialist in the company. They live in those areas. They're around those coaches every day and they're well-respected by those coaches and we can get quick answers from those coaches. Yes, no, or maybe on every player. Uh, yes is great. That's fine. Coaches will reach out to the player right away. No is fine. Then the family can scratch it off the list. Maybe, how do we turn that maybe into a yes or no as quickly as possible? would be the question with the maybe and then whatever the coach tells us, we tell the family. And if it's come to my camp, then it's come to my camp. If the family says, no, I don't want to go to the camp, then tell the coach, thank you very much. And the player moves on trying to get answers. I think the, the most, the scariest part for families, Anna, is how many times do I email this coach? How many times do I contact that coach? How many times do I email that coach? How many times do we reach out? What does it mean when a coach only invites us to their camp? Is that truly a level of interest that's worth pursuing? Or am I just being invited to a camp so that they can feed their family? Coaches sometimes need some reading between the lines. And sometimes we just need to pick up the phone and call the coach and go, hey, look, they can't go to every camp. Are you serious? Because they're serious. They're deadly serious about you. And it's just getting those answers. And also going to camps costs money as well. So being cost effective throughout this entire recruiting process is smart. But just like every industry, there's always things changing. Things are evolving. Where do you see the recruiting process in college soccer headed in the next five-ish years? Well, that's a good question. I think what we are doing has made enough waves throughout the country. I, other agencies will start popping up that, that are going to do the same thing. And if they're reputable and have a good uh, relationship with these coaches. And I think there's plenty of room in the marketplace for others. I think that's one area. Uh, video has become a huge deal. Uh, 10 years ago, 12 years ago, it wasn't as big of a deal as it is now. I mean, it's always been around and it's always been used, but it's so simple now for players to share a link. Unlike when my son was going to school, we were recording VHS tapes and copying full matches from one and going start, stop, start, stop on VHS tapes, and then shipping a VHS tape off to a coach. And then it was DVDs. And now it's, it's so simple. And players can get their own YouTube channels for free. They can start their own websites for free. The digital age of recruiting is, is, has made a mark. Social media has made a mark. Although I think it's become a little bit of spam now because I see these kids, I don't know, I've got almost 7,000 followers on Twitter and I follow a bunch of people and I see, you know, some player, hey coach, I'm going to be playing at this tournament this weekend and they'll tag 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 coaches. But I realize probably a thousand kids are doing that. So at that point, kind of spammy also. But I think digital, the, 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 the social media platforms have probably made an impact to some extent. Where it goes past that, I don't know. What's the next technological breakthrough that we all have? That's the world's biggest question right now, right? It's happening fast, isn't it? The world's it is. changing very quickly. So I don't know what the 10 years from now, but I can tell you with what we're seeing going on right now is certainly the next two, three, four years, probably. The one thing that makes Sports Recruiting USA so unique is you guys don't just help college recruiting placement. I also noticed you help kids transferring and you also help people in gap years. So I saw where high school gap years, college gap years, and then the gap year after college. Why is that an area that you guys specialize in? It's a need. Look, all we're doing is listening to what the public says that the problems are and then trying to provide solutions, right? What Any are the service problems? industry. Well, the problems are, okay, uh, maybe we'll start at the beginning. So a kid graduates high school, they're 18 years old. 
a lot of the European players that are coming into the college system, about 30% of the NCAA players and NAIA players are from another country on the men's side and about 12% on the women's side. And they're coming into the country and, a, and in Europe, a gap year is quite a common thing, right? So I've, I've spent all of these years in schooling. Let me, go, let me go get a job in Italy. Let me go live there for a little, let me figure out who I am before I settle down and decide to go to school and what I wanna study. And I think, it, I think it results in a happiness factor. We read that you know the happiest countries in the world happen to be in Europe. I think part of the reason is that kids are going and spending a year doing service going into the service or they're spending time, sometimes mandatory in these countries, they don't have a choice in some of the Scandinavian countries, especially, but kids are taking gap years and kids are exploring the world a little bit. They're finding out who they are before they then know what they want to study and then what they want to go into. Here in the United States, we tend to shove our kids straight into college right away. Here, you're 18 years old, get out of the house, go to college, go do your thing. And sometimes it's not the right fit for every kid. Some kids, it's fantastic. It works great for other kids, it doesn't. And so what we're trying to do is take a look at the individual rather than treat everybody as a group and say, everybody as a group should be doing this. Everybody as a group should be doing that. The gap year is part of that. So that's what the gap year is about. And it lets these kids grow up and mature a little bit. And then the Americans, the, the domestic players that do come back into the college system aren't entering as an 18 year old, they're entering as a 19 or 20 year old and they can compete better with the juniors and seniors that are already in college because they're more physically, emotionally, mentally, and soccer technically, tactically, physically, and mentally mature uh, than they would be at 18. And they find greater levels of success, less bench time, more playing time. And any soccer player knows that there's only 11 players at any one time that are happy. It's the ones that are on the field. The rest of them are not happy. No matter what they say, they're not happy with very few exceptions. And there are even those exceptions. I've met players that have played at Virginia and they have national championship rings on their finger and they played a grand total of zero minutes in four years, but said they wouldn't change it. That player is a rare, rare beast. I don't like to talk about the one quarters of 1%. So I like to talk about the other 99% more often. So that's part of it. Transfer process is, look, it's complicated. There's at any time right now, there's over a thousand kids on the transfer portal that are NCAA players. Then you've got NAIA players that are trying to transfer. Then you've got junior college players that are transfer. There's about two to 3,000 players in the United States that are looking, maybe 4,000. They're looking to transfer at any given moment uh, at, at, at any point in time. So that part becomes complicated. If those players need our help, clearly something went wrong the first time or they wouldn't be transferring. Uh, something wasn't the right fit with the exception of the junior college kids. Sometimes they need advice and they are in high demand from college coaches, by the way. Uh, a more mature 20 year old than an 18 year old who's an unknown factor is, is somewhat interesting. I think as a college coach, the concern that I have with the transfer portal is, so why is this kid transferring? Is it just it wasn't the right fit? Or is it the coach wasn't the right coach for the kid? Or is that kid a problem child, which is what we're freaking out about. That's the part we're trying to dig to. It's like, yeah, 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 yeah. You're transferring because, and this happens in the United States. Are you transferring because you got in trouble? Because you're late to practice every day? Because you showed up drunk to a volleyball game with your friends? Is that why you're transferring? 
That happens in this country, not a big percentage, Anna, but you played in college, come on. You saw kids that didn't have their crap together, didn't you? You know what I'm talking about. Right, and some people show up to a college at 18 years old and they figure out that academically it's not the right fit, athletically it's not the right fit, and then they have to scramble. You don't have the same amount of time that you did in high school to figure out where you want to go to next and maybe they're not even sure what they want to do academically. So how do you support those kids when they have such a small window to figure out their next step? In order for us to agree to represent a transfer kid, all of the stars have to align and they have to understand, I am going to call their coach. I am going to get word from their coach exactly why, from the coach's perspective, that this player wasn't a right fit. And now if the player's story and the coach's story match, I have no problem helping this kid. Quite often, I find the stories don't match and I'm not taking sides. But at that point, I can't right. represent that player because they have to know that any college coach worth a grain of salt is going to call that college coach too. So they're going to hear the same story from the player and then they're going to hear the same story from the coach. And that kid's got very little chance, very little chance of making it through this transfer process if that coach says, no, not a good kid. I would not recruit that kid again. Because of everything that you do at Sports Recruiting USA, you help with transfers, you help with the gap years, you help high schoolers figure out where they're going to college. How have you seen your experience as a college coach at so many different levels help you with your job as an agent? Oh, my Lord. I could not do this job if I hadn't coached college at all those levels. And I was the, I'm the luckiest man in America. How many guys get to stay at one school in California and coach NAIA D3? Indeed, to all at the same school. It's like, you know, I didn't have to move my family. So I'm very lucky there. And really, even more than that now, Anna, now that I've been this for three years, going on four years, uh, what I've learned in this job is uh, unbelievable. Uh, you know, to be able to place a kid at, at a Kentucky and or at a Florida State and get to hear from the kids the insider scoop about these programs and these coaches and the culture then gives me and, you know, since I've been here, you know, we've been involved in five, six hundred kids finding homes just since I've been involved in 2018. And we're, we keep in touch with these kids and these families. We provide pastoral care throughout the four years. I can't provide the same agency care, but I can provide pastoral care. So when these kids call me and they have a problem, it's like, hey, I want to talk to the coach, Don, uh, about this subject. How would you do it? How would you approach it? How would you want to hear it as a college coach? Because I've got this delicate issue that I need to talk about. And so we talk to our kids once, twice, three times, four times a year. Some of my kids call me every other month and they're already in college. And I get to learn a lot about the programs, the fitness programs, and, you know, it all gets logged. We keep track of all of it. Um, we pay attention to which coaches are abusive and which coaches are nurturing. Honestly, the abusive coach could be the right fit for this certain kind of a kid. I know kids that like to be yelled at, screamed at. They like that drama. They feed off of it and they play better and they fit fine in that environment. Then I know other coaches that would, or kids that would wilt in that environment and it's just not what they want. Yeah, we get to learn all that stuff. It's kind of fun. Right, and it sounds like you have a huge log of different things you've learned over the years as well. And 
not only do you do all of those things with Sports Recruiting USA, but you also host a podcast, Inside College Soccer Podcast. What's the mission behind the podcast? Education. Look, everything, everything we do is revolved around education. I agreed to go into the education industry going on 26 years ago now, and uh, I can't I can't break that mold. It's not like I can break who I am and what I've learned and what I've developed. So us as a company believe that there's a lot of false information going on out there. Uh, we know there is, now we believe. We hear it, we see it every day and it doesn't align with reality. And so by bringing on the guests that we bring on, every guest we bring on is about education. So whether it's Erica Sutter who does, she's a big, she has a big social media press around fitness for women, soccer players specifically. And so, you know, when she, we're doing a podcast with her later on today, and we brought in Dan Abrahams, the world famous sports psychologist, and we've talked about sports psychology, or we brought in Bobby Clark, who's won national championships and coached at Notre Dame and Stanford and Dartmouth, uh, Mark Carr, who's coached at Oklahoma. And, you know, we bring in these calls and we ask them questions that if you listen to what everybody's saying and you do the overlay, right? And you you stack one on top of another, you get a very clear and accurate picture from an insider's point of view of what college soccer is all about. Thus the name inside college soccer. It's not about college soccer. It's about the inner workings of college soccer. Well, Don, thank you so much for everything you do in college soccer with the recruiting process and making sure everyone is educated on how to go about everything. It was so fun to learn about your experience in the soccer world and really where you see college recruiting headed. Thanks so much for coming on the United Soccer Coaches podcast. Oh, thank you. And I am absolutely thrilled to death of all of the podcasts I've been on. This is going to rank in my top two or three, just because I've been a member of the association for going back when the old name change was there, right? I've got awards hanging in my, in my office from the association. And what United Soccer Coaches does, by the way, and I know your audience knows this, it is one of the more open, welcoming organizations that are involved around college soccer. Please, people, please don't lump them in with other organizations uh, as far as the education, how they handle things, how they open. And so for me, this has been a thrill. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you, Anna Witte, and thank you, Don Williams. Also, I want to thank Bailey Conklin, Brandon Milburn, Erica Dyer, and all the great folks at United Soccer Coaches, Jeff Van Dusen included. I want to thank our producer, Colin Thrash, for each and every one of them. And all of you, I'm Dean Linke, saying we'll see you next week for another edition of the United Soccer Coaches podcast presented by League Apps. Thanks for listening to the United Soccer Coaches podcast presented by League Apps. League Apps is the leading youth sports management platform, providing organizations with the technology and professional development they need to run, grow, and win. To learn more about League Apps, find them at leagueapps.com or as League Apps on all of the social networks. And to learn more about United Soccer Coaches, visit us at unitedsoccercoaches.org.